bloop, 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 bloop. <laughs> that was the gayest phone <laughs> ring I've ever heard. Good morning, Sue Benson. How are you? Good to go. I can't. <laughs> oh, you are so crazy. Good morning. How are you, my darling? It is it is Tuesday. No, is it Friday? I don't know what day it is. You know, when you do a podcast and are running a, a, a new nonprofit, um, waiting for status and setting everything up, it just it's easy to lose track of days. Today, Megan would like to talk about uh, something really special and close to her heart, which is also close to the place where my heart would be if I had one. <laughs> that little black spot that right little, there. That little black cavernous hole in my chest. Well, I... What I wanted to talk about today is, um, I want to say it's probably for me, um, a, a personal disconnect between when I was growing up, so many things were made for me. Um, and because at the time fabric was less expensive <laughs> than buying ready-made clothes and, um, it really was not a badge of honor of having things that were made for me. It felt um, more of a coming from a place of less than um, because we didn't have a lot, a lot of means growing up. It was still, you know, better than what is it? Eight tenths of the rest of the world and uh, the living conditions when I was growing up, but we didn't have a lot, a lot. And I had a lot of hand-me-downs from my cousins and a lot of things were altered to fit me. And so when I first got into design, I really had to put on a different pair of glasses um, from what I had a worldview about things being sewn for me. And it changed my, my, my worldview about custom made as opposed to this is being made for me because we come from less means. And, um, and I think it's such a, um, a tender spot in my heart because I felt so awful. I felt so many eyes on me because I didn't have the latest brand label, blah, 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 blah. I had fat cat um, in a ditzy print all over my halter top and high-waisted shorts. And so, like, it was diff it was, um you know, it was a different fashion childhood for me compared to my peers, for sure. Yeah, you know, I, I had um, I had a very dissimilar experience with homemade and handmade growing up. Um, my mother knew how to use a charge card, and my father was being very successful as a, a salesperson of um, natural gas appliances, apparently maybe the number one in the country, uh, so the story goes. Uh, we were we were sort of working wealthy, uh, four cars, several acres, more bedrooms than we had people. Um, but mom was a, a diligent shopper and she was a, a bargain shopper. And we spent many hours in the bargain basement of J.L. Hudson's uh, when I wasn't up top ripping off Barbie clothes. I, I did have a little... <laughs> I, they wouldn't buy me Barbie clothes, so I had to take them. Uh, that that stopped, of course, when you know the whole police thing got happy. I I learned, um, mm -hmm. and I was like seven. People give me a fucking break. Um, but mom did so. My my both of my grandmothers had been dressmakers. 
my Mimi, who was my mom's mom from Kentucky, uh, could look at something and just take out take out the cloth and cut it out and sew it and it would be perfect i mean she made brilliant dresses um my my uh, great grandmother uh, had been married to a tailor on my dad's side and my grandma irene made dresses i think that that had been something maybe she had done for, for jl hudson once upon a time as a single mom uh so there were sewers on all sides and i will tell you in my experience when somebody made us clothing that felt even more special than having the stuff that was store-bought um there's a there's a great picture of my sister and i were irish twins i'm a year and 18 days younger i came along very quickly after she did and my mom had made these brilliant knit shirts with uh little soldier epaulets a girl's version and a boy's version and it's one of my favorite pictures of my sister and i and i remember feeling so special that um, mom had made us both shirts for this photo shoot. It seemed like such an important thing. And she would make herself dresses to go out to the big swanky parties. She bought things too, though. Mm -hmm. Um, My aunt was the um, uh, regional director of a display for Sears and Roebuck in Metro Detroit. And uh, she also uh, was quite a sewer. So she always had the best machines and the best props and the best toys left over from the displays. So, um, you know, we had a cornucopia of things to play with. My first sewing machine was actually a Kenmore that I, I, I <laughs> was handed down from her with all of the cams. Um, I remember sitting by her side when she was uh, in the running to be Miss Michigan 1972. And she made herself a, a maroon and dusty rose polyester evening gown. Uh, so it, to me, in my experience, things that were made were always more indicative of love and mm-hmm. less indicative of not having money. Now, that did change when the economy fell apart in 77 in Detroit. Detroit was hit. My dad's job went away. Suddenly, um, the clothing that they were able to afford for me was coming off of the clearance rack at Kmart. And they were not the nicest clothes. And by then, my mom was no longer sewing. And we were sort of out of touch with the grandparents. So um, that's why I started making my own clothes. It was my way of showing myself love and and having exactly what I wanted. So um, I, I guess that's the same experience from opposite sides of polarity. Yeah, like for me, growing up, knowing how to sew was a skill set not dissimilar from learning, you know, basic cooking skills. And so I think that that lived experience is also what I see being a pervasive problem in fashion and why I want it to be introspective about that experience. And, you know, how, how do I remedy it? How do I heal that past part of, you know, what felt um, as a place of lack was really more fortunate than any of my friends around me that were um, dealing with their, um, you know, peer pressure, buying fashion labels, Jordash, or, you know, (laughs) whatever happened to be the hot thing at the time. And it wasn't something that was in the budget of my family. And so, um, really it it took me actually being in the fashion industry um to understand 
that when I was doing repair work to my own bras prior to me um, actually making a bra, because I needed something fixed, wasn't just from a place of, you know, this is a life skill. It was a place of, you have great skills and they could be utilized differently. And, and it, it really kind of blew my world when I went from the tech in Austin to sewing full-time um, alterations for bras, then to opening up my own um, manufacturing facility for bras. And so, it, I mean, it, it was this progressive step taking for me to be able to get there. Um, but I think that some people um, that still have remnants of what I experienced is the reality of where we're at in the fashion industry worldwide of, you know, that there was not a value placed on that knowledge, right? Uh, yeah, women's work. And I think that that's, that's still very much something that lurks in the back of people's minds. I, I was, I belong to a group and um, uh, somebody shared that there was a study done where people asked, uh, uh, you know, a thousand people how much they would pay to have somebody make them close. Um, and, you know, uh, 20 bucks an hour, 15 bucks an hour, $12 an hour. Um, and that same group of respondents was asked um, at another point in time, not the same day, so they weren't doing a compare and contrast, uh, but they reached out to them and said, how much would you expect to pay somebody to clean your house? And the answers were $30, $50 an hour, $70 an hour. And the fact that they saw, and cleaning house is hard work. Uh, my mama was a house cleaner. I've cleaned house for money before, was a house boy for a doctor. Um, and so not to disrespect cleaning at all, but the fact that the highly skilled um, trade of, of apparel construction was so much less valuable to people in America right now than folks cleaning the house was very telling. And I think that a big part of that reason is because uh, people still think of sewing as a woman's work and women are still undervalued in America. Yeah, I think that that um, as we come to this collective consciousness about how much mental work all of these things take and and this uncommon amount of um, mass ability or public ability to look past the intricacies of all the thinking that has to be done in preparation to do what we do as a creator of a garment is dismissed as, you know, not something that's uh, reimbursed or recuperated in um, the same monetary way um, as, as other you know, thought process. Oh, oh God. And, and we don't dare bill for all of the actual work we do. Uh, mm -hmm. This new, this new client I'm putting together a, um, a, a very complex knit dress for, and I have sewn it in my head at least 40 times. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, all the way through, all the way through, not just a quick 30 second. This is how I would sew it, but literally sitting and spending 20, 30 minutes thinking about how the steps will progress. Um, I will have sewn parts of it multiple, multiple times before I put the final sale sample together until I find the very best way to present this garment. So uh, I will charge for some of that, but those three or four or five hours at a time that I spend in my own head um, putting pieces together, I can't bill for that. Yeah. That's just a freebie. Yeah. And, and 
I think that um, perhaps societally that we have an acceptance of um, people who are considered a higher profession that they take, you know, these years and years and years to have all of that time to have those thought processes to be able to make a quick decision about somebody's health or make a quick decision about, you know, a, a financial situation, whatever they happen to be in that it's okay. Like, you know, for whatever reason, it was okay for them to spend those decades as apprentices and it, their, their time is worth it because, you know, they did that. And it's not the same um, in the fashion world at all. <laughs> you know, It's not, it's not. Um, and I know that there's plenty of health professionals or people who are in the long-term apprentice mode of professionals that, um, we as a society have zero problem with um, compensating them for their time in, in, in that field by higher rates of interactions with them as a business professional, right, um, or health professional, and that we don't give that same um, respect or energy to people who, who um, are in that creative mode and whether they're artists or um, clothing designers or, you know, anything that adds um, a positive um, portion to a large group around them. I, I, I find, um, I just find that very interesting, very curious. I, I like being introspective about that aspect of what we do. Um, because it is so often discounted. And even the instructors for fashion, I think, are a lot of times discounted, even though, you know, we've had our fair share of talks about that, too. <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. <laughs> but, I, like, even in that instruct instructor um, model that I would love to teach people, and I'm hoping that, you know, through these podcasts that I'm um, in some part doing that. But... Um, even this, these higher level education instructors, we're willing to pay them um, at a rate um, that compensates on some level that emotional brain time, right? Right. Um, and I think that that's why I find teaching so, you know, appealing because, it, you know, it is a paid respect to the that amount of time it took you to learn those things to be able to share them with other people. Um, and it's just, um, you know, it's just very interesting that that we both ended up where we did with such beginning um, worldviews of, of sewing. Uh, you know, it, it explains a lot. And I think that, that even though we had sort of dissimilar polarities on on how sewn goods affected us. We both understood the importance of it. In your case, perhaps you wouldn't have had anything to wear without somebody who could make things. And in my case, um, watching people put the work in meant so much more than flipping out a piece of plastic and bringing it home in a bag. I also mm. had something that was unique. Yeah. And I, you know, my, I spent an inordinate amount of time I think um, talking about this with you and other people about watching others' behaviors and really listening to my mom who, you know, I growing, I love my mom um, dearly. She uh, went to um, 
school at the University of Texas to try to get her doctorate in social work in the workplace and death and dying. And so when um, my mom would essentially model to me as a child who's trying to struggle you know, emotion, figuring out emotions that we're having to learn this task because we have less than other people. I think I internalized that differently um, than, than you did. And, and I, and I've, um, you know, I kind of want to go back and hug my mom and little Megan at the same time to, um, you know, know that, that there were, there was something greater, beyond that moment of struggle that was being met by something that people just don't give enough credit for. Even in our own houses, you're absolutely right. <laughs> Even in our own laundry room uh, where our sewing yeah, machine is tucked right, away. Right, right. No, I, I, you know, and I, I think that, um, that we were taught the importance of of something being handmade for us that was explained to us it wasn't it wasn't uh something that we had to guess at i mean i remember my mom making curtains taking me out to pick out fabric for curtains in my room i got to pick out my own olive green sagey paint and i got to pick out the curtain fabric and the fact that my mom had this magical power to make curtains or to make a shirt or to make shorts just seemed miraculous to me um and knowing that she loved to tell me how much work it was. I, I, <laughs> I love you to put this much work into a shirt. Um, I, I guess, you know, uh, she made certain, and probably because there were dressmakers in her family uh, yeah. who had raised children with this skill. I think that it was very important. And secretly, um, even though they were reared out by having a queer son at first that wanted to be a fashion designer, I think that both of them actually quite approved because uh, it was a legitimate skill set that, that their parents or grandparents had possessed. Mm. Well, I just, I, I like really visualizing um, another viewpoint um, than my own experience. And, and I really, it brings my heart joy that I can actually, you know, have, you know, have that mind's eye and feel for uh, what you experienced growing up. And I'm very thankful that you shared your story. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, well back at you. I, you know, I, I, I want to go back and just make young Megan all of the frilly dresses, <laughs> all of them here, <laughs> darling. <laughs> Trust me, there's, there's so much love in every one of these stitches. And and now that you've done it, don't I, I mean, yeah, I, I'm sure you've made the littles clothes. Oh, yeah, totally. It's, like, it's it, a lot of fun. It, it's fun, but it's still backbreaking fucking work. It's still mm -hmm. it's still several hours on your feet and bent over a sewing machine, and of course, because it's your kid, you want it to be even more perfect than you'd want it to be for the uh, uh, the Queen of England, because you know your child's not going to go out in something poorly sewn. Um, did 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 when you make things for the for the girls, does that at all heal or change your perception of of the love that was being shown to you, little Megan? when they were making clothes for her? Um, I think that in a lot of ways it does because when my daughters are like, is it done yet? Mm. <laughs> like, let's go take a look. And then they'll notice, oh, well, you're having to piece, you know, the skirt 
pieces together so that it flares and does the twirly thing. And then next we're going to build the yoke so that it comes off of your way, you know? And so they, they are starting to have this root understanding that, um, that things that they desire in fashion don't automatically happen, that fairies don't, you know, come and do that work while you're asleep. And, um, that they well, that they have a different relationship with it than I did. Fairies don't always do the work while they're asleep, but sometimes <laughs> we do. But sometimes we do. And so, you know, I think that um, I'm hopeful that I'm giving them a different relationship um, with clothing than um, what I had. And the fact that my daughters, uh, you know, beg to go to the thrift store so that they can shop and this is their words that they can shop all the stores in one store because that's uh, what happens at the thrift. Uh, you know, right. Right. That I like the openness of that mentality of like, you know, I want to find what resonates with what I want to tell people about me when I'm wearing clothes. And so, um, you know, watching um, their brains operate differently. I really hope that one day they tell a story like you did. And that, that makes me happy. I have to imagine that they will. And, and you know, years later, when I was uh, uh, the, the celebutante uh, of the year, the club queen, as it were, um, it was it it was very much a superpower. You know, friends would ask me, what are you wearing to such and such tonight? And I'd say, I don't know. I haven't made it yet. And, mm -hmm. you know, pr pretty much six nights a week, I would whip up an outfit for myself. And that was very much a superpower. And... Um, I think watching people who couldn't do it, respect it and be in awe of a skill that I thought was just like, this is, this is such easy shit that I'm doing. I didn't even put buttons on it. I just tied it all together. Um, it really, really increased my understanding of the value of what it was that I could do. Just because it was easy for me didn't mean that it was easy or not worthwhile because no one else could do it. And then they gave me money for doing it for them. Yeah. So I, I think your daughters will have an incredibly different story to tell. Um, and also, thank God you and uh, and and the mister are not struggling uh, with, with finances the way your parents seem to have. Um, and that makes a big difference, too, in, in their entire relationship with you and with clothing and with the world. I remember going from having those four cars and that multiple bedroomed house with a summer kitchen and a family room and a pool and our own orchard and uh, to living in a cracker box that we couldn't even afford to heat over the winter. Mom having to heat up water in um, crock pots and, and electric frying pans because we couldn't afford to pay for heating gas. And uh, we'd spend the entire day under electric blankets, pretty much just sleeping. We would eat at a local Ponderosa or Bonanza because for $1.99, you could have all you can eat salad bar. You throw a dollar at that, you can have a ground steak. Um, we went from like the lap of luxury to the, to the, to the trenches of poverty. And, um, so I, I also honestly learned to navigate poverty. And I, I've talked to my sister and brother about those years, and they have very different memories than I do of those times. It really impacted them to make them feel like they were less worthwhile than other people. My memories of those times are how much we still laughed. Mm. 
and how mm-hmm. much we still loved each other. And that as hard as it was when dad's job went away in the economy, what happened to the whole United States in 2008 happened to Detroit in 1977. Literally, our unemployment rate was like 20 or 30 percent in, in the metro area. It was it was tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people out of work here. Um, so we also learned to navigate poverty. And uh, that's not an easy thing. You know, when I entered junior high school, like I said, I was I was lucky to get what was on the clearance rack that would fit me at Kmart, which was often like lemon chiffon, polyester bell bottoms and uh, <laughs> Leonardo da Vinci printed disco shirts, which was the last thing a, a flamboyant gay seventh grader should be wearing. Um, it caused me no end of, of uh, ridicule and teasing and bullying. But of course, even that I turned around and it, it and it it's that was the beginning of me not really giving a fuck what people thought about what I wore and learning the power of clothing to disturb the mindsets of others. Mm-hmm. So uh, that, that the whole the whole story is really there, isn't it? For both of us. It's yeah. really very much there. I mean, it, 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 your experience has definitely informed why you do what you do as well as how you do what you do. Yeah, I think that really um, after reading about burnout, because I devoted so much time developing the business and um, trying to be all things when I shouldn't have been all things, that um, I burnt out, like simply just burnt out and reading articles, um, you know, while everybody's sitting at home during the pandemic about um, it takes six to seven years to recover from burnt out, being burnt out. Well, like I am just now emerging from that. And so, you know, having all of these discussions as this, um, you know, reemergence happens, I have to say has been very cathartic for me has been that I am able to come to my design table a a better designer even just in a couple of weeks it's been absolutely this part has been life-changing in a way that I I honestly didn't expect Benson I I I was just this morning when I was uh, video chatting with you uh, across the Facebook platform uh, and was working on those patterns. I, when I hung up, I thought, you know, um, this podcast and looking forward to this podcast and having these really, truly proactive, healthy discussions about fashion has mitigated a great deal of the grief I was feeling around my career. Mm-hmm. Like I fashion is it's not something that i failed anymore fashion is something that i still obviously do and do well and um i think that talking about it you you know you've always been a smart ass and and i mean that in the greatest of ways like i i know that this was your whole like we're gonna just make this whiny queen talk about pretty things and he'll feel better i can just see that in your head i could just get this whiny bitch to stop bitching and start talking about what's good in fashion and, and, you know, exposing what's horrible in fashion, he'll heal. And, and you were right. It's been very healing. I'm glad it's had that effect on you, too. It wouldn't be fair if I was the only one feeling better about my career. Do you feel relevant <laughs> yet? I feel relevant. I feel that my voice as a designer is important. 
and it's not that it hasn't been it's that i i see it um right. and it's not you know i think we were talking some point about um cleverness it's not that i believe that i am clever in any fashion but i think that um I'm important and I, the work that I'm doing is important. And I think that the other designers that are trying at this same energy level, that they're also important. And, and you know, you, you are an elder in the design community. You're not a young spring chicken. You're not a 22 year old trying to make it anymore. You have had a successful business. You have lost a successful business. You have reemerged as a successful business. Um, you've gone through the evolutions, you've gone through the losses, you've gone through the challenges, you've gone through the rises, you've gone from winning at the top of your game to um, having to pack it all into storage uh, uh, facilities. And that has caused you to have more strength and more insight. And it's definitely placed you in the, um, the giants of the industry. You have more practical knowledge than most people in our industry ever actually will. And even some of the big designer names don't have as much experiences as you have gained. And that's pretty impressive. I didn't ever think that you stopped being relevant. I'll, I'll reiterate that from our very first conversation. I don't think that you ever stop being relevant, but I think it's, it's important that we see our own relevance. And that's, uh, I was the one actually, I apparently that was feeling irrelevant. Um, and I have, I have rediscovered my relevance. What we have to say is important. We are the global voices of fashion, goddammit. We are. And and it's I really enjoy um I really enjoy this mind's eye of, you know, joining hands with you to help people up instead of keep pushing them down. And it's okay to like as we're as we're holding a handout, going, is this the direction you want to go in? Is is there something I can teach you? And some people let go of our hands, and some people you know come up with us. And I really am enjoying the energy that we're able to give to the people that hold on to our hands, even when maybe our message is a little bit caustic or a little bit truth hurtful. Um, but that, that there's room to grow through all of this and there's room to stay relevant through all of this without, you know, pissing on somebody else's parade, um, or not taking the time to deal with the thought process wholly. Um, and, and I'm glad that even though we've kind of, um, flittered in and out of, um, each other's live some years not talking some years talking a lot that we're able to continue these these introspective discussions with each other um because i i don't know how i could help anybody without having a sounding board or having um, somebody else going yes we should do this <laughs> and i'm, I'm not <laughs> you isn't that the the wonder of this is that um how much more we've created in having the podcast than we started out to create yeah we have we have got projects that are taking on lives of their own and that's exactly what we needed to have happen um 
There's no reason for the apparel fashion industry to be a monster. There's no reason. It should uplift every single person who is involved in it. And the eventual end user, the, the, the people who buy our clothing, should be uplifted by the clothing. And they should, uh, they should feel the energetic love the way I felt from my parents. They should know that they're cared for, that the person who made them was happy and fulfilled in making them and wasn't starving and wasn't writing help me messages on the labels. There's no reason that, that a few fat, ugly motherfuckers should have all the money. There's plenty of money in the fashion industry to go around. Everyone should have a good life. Everyone. Thank you for being our PFFs. It's found a fashion friend, but it's Tuesday. And so not quite as heavy, but we're still dishing it. You can listen to all of our episodes on advancedfashiondisruption.com. And there you can always click Angel for Fashion to support Ukrainian designers and bulk up your influential wardrobe while being an angel and an influencer yourself. And as always, we'd like you to join us on Friday so you can be our PFFFF. Found a fashion friend Friday, found a fashion fuck up, whatever you want to call it. If you want to drop us a line, send us a note on our website and listen to us anytime from any one of the podcasting giants where you can listen to Advanced Fashion Disruption. <laughs>